This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Talk about Dharmic lessons from science and literature. So my talk is structured in two parts. The idea, I, the idea was that I would talk a little bit about the science of emotion and then talk about some dharma that I've seen in literature. And by literature now, I'm, I'm talking just about poems because for the last maybe, well, it's been longer than a year, but I've been noticing with certain poems that I come across that, that there are little dharmic seeds in them that just delight me. So I'm going to share those poems with you. So hopefully there's something for everybody in, in this that people who are kind of bored by science will like the poems and people who like the science will <laughs> like the science, but we'll see. So first, I just wanted to draw an analogy between what we're engaged in with Vipassana meditation and with uh, the scientific endeavor. So in Vipassana, what we do is we cultivate a stable platform with which to get to the truth of things. That is, we, we try to sit in a place where external distractions are minimized to the best of our ability. We take a posture that lends itself to um, attention, to the calmness and relaxation of the body, to comfort. And then we really try to cultivate the reduction of the fluctuations of the mind. And that practice... Um, just becomes richer and richer the more you do it. I mean, it's just amazing to me. So it's that, that tool that we have of, a, of attentive awareness that we're really using to try to penetrate to the truth of things. So I think, I think uh, the scientific endeavor is analogous in many ways because we try to, um, with science, we're, we're trying to also find truth. And we have to employ consistent tools in order to, to do that. And we try to create controlled experiments with a narrow range of special conditions. So we, we try to stabilize as much as possible the situation so that we can see what's going on. And along with that, there comes an attempt to stabilize the language that we use to refer to things. In order to continue to investigate... We, we come up with technical definitions for words in science, and that sometimes drives people buggy. And these days, uh, acronyms seem to be the way of the world in science and engineering. So in the Buddha's time, in the Pali texts, or after the Buddha's time with the Pali texts, uh, the, the method for remembering technical language or the language of the Dharma was list-making, and scientists like to make lists, but they like to make acronyms even better, I think. <laughs> so some of the, uh, some of the um, science of emotion has, the scientific investigation of emotion has been a real attempt to come to some definitions of um, what these things mean. So the scientific study of emotion has really only been taken very seriously in the last several decades. There's, there, there was an, uh, a journal that was started in 1977 called Motivation and Emotion. And, and then in recent, the recent last 
10 years, um, it's, it's really taken off with some new tools that scientists have. The uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging tools and um, other, brain, other ways of looking at the brain while people are experiencing things has really um, created a, a huge burgeoning of research. So there's another journal that just started in 2011 called Emotion Review, and that looks really intriguing too. But of course, emotions have been thought about for a very long time, and the one, the one scientist that people refer to quite a bit when they start talking about emotions scientifically is William James, who, who was the brother of Henry James and um, a very influential early psychologist. He wrote a widely read essay in 1884 called What is an Emotion? So I'm going to read a a quote from him, his attempt to try to get to this technical language. Surprise, curiosity, rapture, fear, anger, lust, greed, and the like become the names of the mental states with which the person is possessed. The bodily disturbances are said to be the manifestation of these several emotions, their expression or natural language. And these emotions themselves, being so strongly characterized both from within and from without, may be called the standard emotions. So as a scientist, I'm a little bit already dissatisfied with that because he said, he, he listed a whole bunch of standard emotions, and then he said, and the like. Well, what else? <laughs> I've heard a, a number of talks and read uh, a number of works by Paul Ekman, who's a psychologist at, um, at San Francisco State U- University and one of the most influential scientists on emotion in the 20th century, and his uh, influence continues today. And he's, he's worked very hard at defining emotions, uh, what he calls the basic emotions, And he first came to fame with his seminal studies about emotional expression on the face. So uh, when he was starting to work in the 60s, there was a debate about whether emotional expressions such as smiling, um, frowning, gritting one's teeth, those those, uh, expressions were universal across the globe, across all cultures. And people as illustrious as Margaret Mead said, no, they they differ across cultures. And Paul Ekman thought, well, let me investigate that. So he went out and did some studies with tribes that had had no contact with any uh, Western culture or any kind of uh, pictures or television or radio or anything and discovered that indeed the what he called the basic emotions were expressed in very, very similar ways um, in these tribes. He's, he um, seemed to sort of settle that, that debate, at least for a while. But as I was preparing this talk, I came across a, um, an article that was just published this month in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and the the um, tantalizing title was emotional exp- something like emotional expression is not universal across cultures period <laughs> so there's still debate <laughs> but 
the way that I would um, that I would interpret that is that, well, yes, there are a lot of similarities across cultures, but then there are some differences too, and those differences might be a little bit more subtle than the idea of someone smiling when they're angry or frowning when they're happy or etc. So. When Paul Ekman gives a talk, he, he usually talks about a short list of basic emotions. Can people tell me what they think those seven emotions are? Just, just shout out a couple. Anger. Anger. Fear. Joy. Joy. Disgust. Disgust. Sadness. Sadness. Surprise. Surprise. And I heard, I heard grief, but that would probably go along with... Guilt. Oh, guilt. That's a good one. That wasn't on his short list. And there's one... Worry. That wasn't on there either. I'm not, I'm not trying to say one is good or bad. I'm just giving you his list. And there's one more emotion that he puts on the list, which is uh, contempt, which is an interesting one. And so, so he published um, back in the, I want to say, early 80s, 84, I think it was, published about those, um, a short list of basic emotions. And then in 99, he published a longer list of 15 emotions. Uh, Sadness, distress, as number one. Anger. Sensory pleasure. Contentment. Satisfaction. Pride. And for some reason, in parentheses, he put in achievement. I think there are a lot of different kinds of pride, but anyway, amusement, relief, disgust, contempt, excitement, fear, guilt, shame, and embarrassment. He has argued strongly that these these emotions and the like... (laughs) should be considered basic emotions. And what makes them basic? He created a list of characteristics that distinguish emotions from other states, mental states, affective states, what have you. Distinctive universal signals, and this goes along with with his theory that, that these things are universal across humans. Distinctive physiology... So, for example, in sitting up here in front of you, I can't deny that I have some, some anxiousness, some self-consciousness, some anxiety, and that turns into, that actually turns into a little bit of heart thumping, and that would be the distinctive physiology of um, nervousness that we can all relate to, I think. The appraisal, the emotional appraisal, or the, um, the process that gets you into an emotion is fast and opaque to consciousness. So it's, that's a really interesting thing, especially when you think about meditating, that emotions arise. Have you caught that moment when they start? And as I was sitting here in the meditation period, I, I noticed that heart thing uh, come up. But I, I certainly can't say that I thought, I'm nervous and then noticed the heart. It was, oh, that's interesting. The heart's doing that. Okay, that's nervousness. But there were other things going on in my mind, too. So 
that opaque to consciousness thing is a really interesting idea and something that meditators might or might not argue with. I don't know. Unbidden occurrence. You don't necessarily ask for it. It comes up. Distinctive universals and antecedent events. How's that for a scientist lingo? Uh, Distinctive appearance developmentally. I'm going to skip over those. Um, Presence in other primates. I just went up to Central Washington University to visit the chimpanzees that are held in sanctuary there. These are chimpanzees that were, they were used in the early sign language experiments. There were various experiments to see if chimpanzees could use language in the 70s and 80s, and these chimps are now in their 30s, um, and they're still signing to humans. It's really amazing, really a wonderful experience. And one of the things about them that the... um, graduate students emphasized is that they have very little impulse control. So they have this, their emotions come up and they act on them like that. And that's what makes them dangerous because they're a lot, more, they're a lot stronger than human beings. But anyway, the, the chimps, the, the gorillas, orangutans, the other primates all have emotions. But of course, since he wrote this article, it's become much more widely accepted that all, all animals really have uh, emotions. Um, it's not universally accepted. but And then the eighth characteristic is quick onset. And then brief duration. And this brief duration uh, characteristic is interesting. I've heard a few Dharma teachers say that they've read that Science tells us that emotions last 90 seconds. And I thought, hmm, I wonder where that came from. You know, what study or studies led to that statement? And, and I found that it, was, it comes directly from Jill Bolte-Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight. She's a, um, a scientist who, who wrote a book about her experience with a stroke and she, she says, I define responsibility as the ability to choose how we respond to stimulation coming in through our sensory systems at any moment in time. Although there are certain limbic system, that is, emotional programs, that can be triggered automatically, it takes less than 90 seconds for one of these programs to be triggered, surge through our body, and then be completely flushed out of our bloodstream. My anger response, for example, is a programmed response that can be set off automatically. Once triggered, the chemical released by my brain surges through my body and I have a physiological experience. Within 90 seconds from the initial trigger, the chemical component of my anger has completely dissipated from my blood and my automatic response is over. If, however, I remain angry after those 90 seconds have have passed, then it is because I have chosen to let that circuit continue to run. Moment by moment, I make the choice to either hook into my neurocircuitry or move back into the present moment, allowing that reaction to melt away as fleeting physiology. Well, that sounds wonderfully dharmic. (laughs) That's why I've heard several dharma teachers, and I've seen it published all over the web in kind of dharma-related places, but I haven't been able to find any reference to the actual research on that 90-second duration. I know that, that Ekman has proposed something he calls an emotional profile, which is where he studies when the emotion starts, 
how intense it is and when, when, how, how long it takes to dissipate. But I don't know the tools that he uses to measure that. I mean, he's famous for something, in addition to what I mentioned earlier, the facial action coding system, which is a system of indices for all the many hundreds of muscles in your face. And through a combination of those codes, he can objectively describe what expression is on your face and therefore read what's going on probably emotionally. But the expression on your face and all the other things that are associated with emotion are not the same thing. One is the indicator of the other. So anyway, that's intriguing to me. He hasn't published anything on that yet, so we'll, we'll see. <laughs> and I certainly haven't done an exhaustive review, but if anybody knows more about this, I'd be interested to hear about it. So then he has a couple of other um, characteristics of emotion. Distinctive thoughts memories, images, and distinctive subjective experience. That set of things, that set of characteristics is what for him defines a basic emotion and that that definition has been pretty well accepted. And then he has a really neat thing, uh, a continuum to distinguish those emotions that are of brief duration with things like moods, traits, and even disorders which have longer duration. So, for example, the emotion of distress might have an associated mood of feeling blue and an attitude of trait like melancholic and then a disorder like depression. And fear might have be apprehensive emotion and then um, uh, a timorous trait and then anxiety in the, in the disordered end of the spectrum. But you can tell these words, these are words that we use in common everyday language, and they're certainly used in literature all over the place. They're very evocative. They're not really technical words. They don't have a narrow definition that, that allows you to say, distress is one thing of short duration, and feeling blue is mood, and that's another thing. So food for thought. What about interest or boredom? Are those emotions? Some people have said, yeah, they are. And I think it, from a dharmic perspective, it's interesting to think about cultivating interest since that's one of the very important things about practicing meditation and, and studying uh, the dharma is without interest, without that motivator, it's going to be hard to continue. Another one, another uh, thing that's been debated is compassion. And I thought compassion would be a good segue to next week's talk. Is compassion an emotion? I don't know how Leah's going to answer that, but I wanted to read a little bit of the debate between Paul Ekman and the Dalai Lama. He had occasion to sit with the Dalai Lama for 17 total hours of conversation, a very wonderful opportunity, and they wrote a book about it. And this is a wonderful book. If, if people haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. It's called Emotional Awareness, Overcoming the Obstacles to Psychological Balance and Compassion. And so they have, there's a section here, Uh, recording their conversation about defining compassion. 
And the Dalai Lama says, on one occasion, meeting with scientists, I remember Francisco Varela. We agreed, strong compassion, infinite compassion. It's a kind of emotion. And Ekman says, I do not agree that compassion is an emotion. And Dalai Lama says, it really depends on how you define emotion. Compassion or loving kindness does not develop spontaneously, but through training, through reasoning. It will depend on whether or not we would want to define this kind of compassion as an emotion or not. There's an understanding that repeatedly and intensely practicing shamatha bodhisattvas on a daily basis cultivates compassion for all beings. Once the person experiences this heightened compassion, his or her compassion retains that kind of tone throughout the day, although the compassion itself may not be as a felt state of emotion. Still, whatever the person does is affected by that tone. In that sense, it resembles a mood. However, because of that state of mind, the basic emotion is not thought to be harmful. Therefore, the mood or the state of mind that it creates is not thought to lead to a falsification of reality or a distortion of reality, which he's sort of implying other emotions might be. And then Ekman says, that's one of the reasons why I say compassion is neither a mood nor an emotion. It does not distort or selectively filter our view of reality. It makes us more sensitive to reality. It makes us care more about reality. We have emotions, we have moods, but compassion is different from either. And I, I, I found this very interesting to read because it almost seemed to me like Dalai Lama was in the scientist's shoes and Ekman was in the Dharma teacher's <laughs> shoes. <laughs> A second important difference, and this is Ekman still, A second important difference between the emotions and compassion is that the emotions do not need to be cultivated. They are a part of us, given by nature. But compassion, if it is to extend beyond the immediate family, needs to be cultivated. Nature only gives us a start. It only gives us compassion focused within the immediate family, etc. So then he goes on and says... So in my view, compassion differs in four ways from emotions. It needs to be cultivated. Once cultivated is an enduring feature of the person while emotions come and go. Compassion doesn't distort reality. And the focus of compassion is restricted to the relief of suffering. So then um, the Dalai Lama says, um, when you have an intense emotion of compassion, an intense state of compassion for someone, there's a disequilibrium. There is a sense of affliction. But the difference here is that in the case of afflictive mental states, there is an element of loss of self-control, loss of freedom. Whereas in the case of compassion, there is no such loss of freedom. We deliberately train in order to be concerned with the other's suffering. So strong... Um, So strong emotion or feeling comes out through effort voluntarily. The affliction that is experienced by the person who is having compassion is in some sense not out of control because he or she chooses to be in that state voluntary. So I just found this, this this conversation between them to be very interesting and then by the end of it they they both agree, okay, we'll decide that compassion is not an emotion and call it quits for now. 
but <laughs> but um, rest assured that that there's not universal agreement on that. But it's really interesting to see what it is about those states of compassion and what the Dalai Lama has to share about that since we look to him as someone who has cultivated great amounts of compassion and is a wonderful model. The title is Emotional Awareness, Overcoming the Obstacles to Psychological Balance and Compassion. I wanted to go back to an acronym that was used last week and the week before that many of you are familiar with. It's RAIN, Recognize, Accept or Allow, Investigate, and then N. Last week, Robert used Aiming for N. And the previous week, Renee used N for Not Identifying. The naming is, the the purpose of naming is, is to the same ends of not identifying. And so I thought, I think it, it was helpful for me, and it continues to be helpful for me to make this investigation of naming emotions to try to, to see them in, in a clear light. And so that's, that's really fueled my study. I, I've just been really enjoying the books by Ekman and Damasio, and um, Richard Davison, Davidson has written a recent book on the topic. He's the one that... Um, Shaila and a few members of our Sangha have gone to contribute their brains to his research um, on. And then uh, there's a guy named Ledoux. I think it's Jerome Ledoux. Anyway, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And all of them do agree that emotions are motivators. Evolutionary understanding is clear that emotions function to motivate behavior that leads to survival or increased success, such as the fight-or-flight response or the tend-and-befriend response. So anger is a natural response to being personally thwarted in our objectives and motivates us to clear those perceived obstacles. But it certainly can be used in unskillful ways, in harmful ways, Sadness is a natural response to loss and acts to slow us down and get us to reflect on what's going on, what's changed now that we've lost. So emotions have really important functions for us. And so our, our practice is to, um, to train to use them more skillfully. So in fact, they, they are critical in decision-making as well as just motivating less complex behavior. So Antonio Damasio wrote a book in 1994 called Descartes' Error, Emotion, Reason, and the Human Brain, which showed that when we face complex or conflicting choices, we may be unable to decide using only cognitive processes they become overloaded actually pretty easily and they're unable to to help us decide. And emotions are key. And in some cases, people who have lost some of their emotional function due to brain injury are are completely um, undecided. They just can't make decisions. So we should really value our emotions. They're precious. They allow us to make decisions and um, practice the Dharma. And that's why um, cultivating joy in our, our meditation is very important. To quote Ledoux for, for wrapping up this scientific portion of, of my talk, he says, as things now stand, 
The amygdala, that is one of the important emotional centers of our brain, has a greater influence on the cortex, that is the more thinking cognitive part of our brain, than the cortex has on the amygdala, allowing emotional pathways from the amygdala to the cortex overshadow the pathways from the cortex to the amygdala. Although thoughts can easily trigger emotions by activating the amygdala, we are not very effective at willfully turning off emotions by deactivating the amygdala. So to me, that statement kind of validates my experience of noticing how thoughts alone don't usually have a whole lot of power to change my behavior, especially behavior that is long-term, deeply seated, and highly emotional. And so cultivating our, our meditative training is, is a way to, uh, to work with, with this wonderful brain that we have. So no, so, so no wonder we can't just take the eightfold path as is, forget about those first three noble truths, and say, okay, yo, those, those sound like a good idea. Right action, right mindfulness, right livelihood. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that now. <laughs> we, we, have, we have to do more than just think about it. So with that, I'm going to switch gears and, and ask your indulgence to read some poems. These poems may or probably will evoke some emotion, hopefully, they, and they, they will have some different emotions associated with them. So the first one, and I've, I've categorized them because they really evoke the three characteristics to me. The first two poems have to do with dukkha, or suffering. So the first one is called What the Living Do, by Marie Howe. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the Drano won't work, but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky's a deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here, and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again. And again later, when buying a hairbrush, this is it. Parking. Slamming the door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning. What you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call. A letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments, walking, when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say, the window glass of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living. 
I remember you. I'm going to switch to Anicca for a moment. So this is impermanence. This, t- this poem is called Forgetfulness by Billy Connolly. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. As if, one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps. The address of an uncle. The capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall, (laughs) well on your way to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. That has a little dukkha in it too, but (laughs) that is called Forgetfulness by Billy Connolly. Collins, I'm sorry. Collins, thanks for correcting me. And he was a poet laureate for a while. Um... There's a beautiful rendition of that poem on YouTube if you look it up. So back to Dukkha again, and this one is called Prayer by Marie Howe again. And this one reminded me of meditation practice. Every day I want to speak with you. And every day something more important calls for my attention. The drugstore, the beauty products, the luggage I need to pack for my trip. Even now, I can hardly sit here. Among the falling piles of paper and clothing, the garbage trucks outside already screeching and banging. The mystics say you are as close as my own breath. Why do I flee from you? My days and nights pour through me like complaints and become a story I forgot to tell. Help me, even as I write these words, I am planning to rise from the chair as soon as I finish this sentence. This one um, I put in the anatta category, the not-self category. This poem is called Harmony in the Boudoir by Mark Strand. After years of marriage, he stands at the foot of the bed and tells his wife that she will never know him that for everything he says, there is more that he does not say, that behind each word he utters, there is another word, and hundreds more behind that one. All those unsaid words, he says, contain his true self, 
which has been betrayed by the superficial self before her. So you see, he says, kicking off his slippers, I am more than what I have led you to believe I am. Oh, you silly man, says his wife, of course you are. I find that just thinking of you having so many selves receding into nothingness is very exciting. That you barely exist as you are couldn't please me more. I'm missing a poem here. Oh, well. Let's see. Oh, here it is. Okay, this poem also in the Anatta category. My Life by Joe Wenderoth. Somehow it got into my room. I found it, and it was, naturally, trapped. It was nothing more than a frightened animal. Since then, I raised it up. I kept it for myself, kept it in my room, kept it for its own good. I named the animal My Life. That's funny. That's, that's a, a great start, but I can't find the rest of it. <laughs> Maybe I left it on the printer at home. However, the last poem that I plan to read is here in its entirety, thankfully. <laughs> this one is called, uh, this one is in the category of maybe codependent arising or just, it just seems kind of dharmic to me. So you can see for yourself if you feel the same way. This one's called The Calf Path by Sam Walter Foss, who lived between 1858 and 1911, so it's much older than the other poems I read. One day, through the primeval wood, a calf walked home as good calves should, but made a trail all bent askew, a crooked trail as all calves do. Since then, 300 years have fled, and, I infer, the calf is dead. But still he left behind his trail, and thereby hangs my moral tale. The trail was taken up next day by a lone dog that passed that way. And then a wise bellwether sheep pursued the trail o'er vale and steep, and drew the flock behind him too, as good bellwethers always do. And from that day, o'er hill and glade, through those old woods a path was made, and many men wound in and out and dodged and turned and bent about and uttered words of righteous wrath because t'was such a crooked path. But still they followed, do not laugh, the first migrations of that calf. And through this winding wood way stalked because he wobbled when he walked. This forest path became a lane that bent and turned and turned again. This crooked lane became a road where many a poor horse with his load toiled on beneath the burning sun and traveled some three miles in one. And thus a century and a half they trod the footsteps of that calf. The years passed on in swiftness fleet. The road became a village street. And this before men were aware, a city's crowded thoroughfare. And soon the central street was this of a renowned metropolis, and men two centuries and a half trod in the footsteps of that calf. Each day a hundred thousand rout followed that zigzag, zigzag calf about, 
and o'er his crooked journey went the traffic of a continent. A hundred thousand men were led by one calf near three centuries dead. They follow still his crooked way and lose one hundred years a day. For thus such reverence is lent to well-established precedent. A moral lesson this might teach were I ordained and called to preach. For men are prone to go it blind along the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and out and in and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. They keep the path a sacred groove along which all their lives they move. But how the wise old wood gods laugh who saw the first primeval calf. Ah, many things this tale might teach, but I am not ordained to preach. <laughs> so, um, Sorry About My Life by, Joan Ren- by Joe Wenderoth. <laughs> um, but that's all I had for this evening. So um, I guess I'll open the floor for any discussion or questions. Those two words are, are really interesting. Feeling... In, uh, in the Dharmic circles, we use the word feeling to translate um, the Pali term Vedana. And we use that in a technical sense, a very narrow sense, which is something that's pleasant or unpleasant. Those feeling, feelings of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasantness nor unpleasantness. And that reminds me, there's a, a William James quote here that... Where he, said, where he talks about pleasant, unpleasant, or dubious. I like that. <laughs> yeah, here it is. The next thing to be noticed is this, that every one of the bodily changes, whatsoever it be, is felt acutely or obscurely the moment it occurs. If the reader has never paid attention to this mat- matter, he will be both interested and astonished to learn how many different local bodily feelings he can detect in himself as characteristic of his various emotional moods. It would be perhaps too much to expect him to arrest the tide of any strong gust of passion for the sake of any such curious analysis as this. But he can observe more tranquil states and that may be assumed here to be true of the greater, which is shown to be true of the less. How dharmic is that? Our whole cubic capacity is sensibly alive, and each morsel of it contributes its pulsations of feeling, dim or sharp, pleasant, painful, or dubious. <laughs> I thought that passage was very, very dharmic. So then... Just recently, I heard Antonio Damasio say that he likes to think of emotions and feelings as two separate things. Emotions are what happen. All those characteristics I mentioned earlier, they're unbidden, they're um, opaque to consciousness, they're brief in duration, all of these things. And then feeling is, is basically the knowing of the emotion, the knowing of the bodily sensation, the the experience of it. And um, so he said, well, I don't expect you to keep those two words separate, but I, that's how I like to think of it so that he can, he can make his um, theories and 
studies and controlled experiments. So there's, there's no one answer, but it's, um, it's interesting to think about is, what is knowing, what is feeling. When we ask somebody about feeling, they, we often say, what does it feel like? And then we have to say what it's like. But that what it's like is not the thing itself. So our language um, is, is limited in that way. Maybe one more, Maureen? All right. That would be a fitting end to the evening. <laughs> Thank you, Maureen. I guess she was intrigued by, uh, by the beginning. <laughs> okay, here it is. Somehow it got into my room. I found it, and it was naturally trapped. It was nothing more than a frightened animal. Since then, I raised it up. I kept it for myself, kept it in my room, kept it for its own good. I named the animal my life. I found food for it and fed it with my bare hands. I let it into my bed, let it breathe in my sleep. And the animal, in my love, in my constant care, grew up to be strong and capable of many clever tricks. One day, quite recently, I was running my hand over the animal's side and I came to understand that it could very easily kill me. I realized further that it would that it would kill me. This is why it exists, why I raised it. Since then, I have not known what to do. I stopped feeding it, only to find that its growth has nothing to do with food. I stopped cleaning it and found that it cleans itself. I stopped singing it to sleep and found that it falls asleep faster without my song. I don't know what to do. I no longer make my life do tricks. I leave the animal alone, and for now it leaves me alone too. I have nothing to say, nothing to do. Between my life and me, a silence is coming. Together, we will not get through this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.